thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, and Law. Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 9.0, A Brief History of the Expanded Universe. Last time, we talked all about the trials and tribulations of the Lost Tribe of the Sith. This time, we introduce the new Sith Wars, talk about the many contradictions of Darth Bane, and try to figure out why George Lucas inserted continuity errors into his own canon. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Star Wars, The New Sith Wars. Welcome to Series 9, the final entry in our Old Republic narrative. Series 9 will cover all of the New Sith Wars from Darth Ruin's resurrection of the Sith Empire in 2000 BBY to the Seventh Battle of Rusan in 1000 BBY and the subsequent Rusan Reformation that remade the galaxy and ended the Old Republic. Actually, Series 9 will cover everything that occurs in the timeline after the SWOTOR bubble pops circa 3626, though there isn't really much for 1600 years until the New Sith Wars. Also, Series 9 will actually end until 980 BBY, 20 years after the fall of the Old Republic, because that's when the Darth Bane trilogy of novels concludes. So technically, Series 9 will last from 3625 to 980 BBY, but it's just easier to say it's about the new Sith Wars, because that's when stuff actually starts to happen in the timeline after SWOTOR ends. Though the new Sith Wars last for a thousand years, all but one of the standalone series occur in the last 32 years of the conflict. Everything else we know before that comes from reference books. Though there are 14 total standalone stories, six of those are short stories or one-shot comics, so there's not as much content as you might think, and two of the stories were later adapted and retold in other works. So it's really more like 12 stories. The eight longer standalone stories are, in chronological order, John Jackson Miller's three five-issue comic arcs, Knight Errant, there's uh, Miller's novel of the same name, Jedi vs. Sith, a six-issue comic series set around the Seventh Battle of Rusan, and Drew Carpetian's Darth Bane trilogy. Don't worry, we'll get to all the short stories and one-shot comics, too. But before we sort out what all those dates and proper names mean, we have to talk about the meta and background of the new Sith Wars. And who, buddy, is there ever a lot of it? In fact, this episode will mostly serve as a meta-analysis for the new Sith Wars stories, because their creation is complex and interesting. But it's a somewhat intricate story, so it will take us most of this episode to tell. Near the end of the episode, we will cover the timeline for the 1600 years from the end of SWOTOR to 2000 BBY, just before the new Sith Wars begin. The meta. All right, so here's the disclaimer. Usually the story, usually the series is all about the narrative stories of the Old Republic. And so we can largely interpret them as we wish, at least within the context of the larger Star Wars universe. Examples of this would be the side quest segments we did during Knights of the Old Republic and basically all of our interpretation of Knights of the Old Republic 2. There are, of course, other ways to interpret these stories, such is to be expected. 
However, much of the content we will be dealing with today is based on opinions and conjecture, occasionally by third parties. This is because the development of the New Sith Wars and Bane's Rule of Two is fundamentally connected to changes George Lucas made between the original trilogy and the prequels. Any discussion of that necessarily involves looking at how Lucas viewed his franchise and its associated content. For example, one question we will get to is whether Lucas was intentionally trying to write out old content or the expan- write out old content of the from the expanded universe by making changes in universe between the first two trilogies. While that is possibly true, we'll discuss why it probably isn't momentarily. Essentially, part of this episode will involve us trying to get inside the mind of George Lucas during his creation of the prequels, using Lucas's own statements and actions and those of Lucasfilm employees. Though we've done our best to source this information, we don't have concrete reasons for everything that occurred, so there is some supposition and guesswork going on. With that being the case, there may be something we've missed, or we may be completely mistaken about George George Lucas's choices, which is a long way of saying that we might be wrong and are happy to eat crow if that is the case. To that end, we should make an apology or at least a clarification of previous comments. And by we, I mean myself. During the show's run, I have occasionally made offhand jokes about Lucas's supposed disdain uh, for the EU due to later retcons or decisions. Those were intended as jokes, and I don't really think that is the case, as as will hopefully become evident during this episode. But I figured it would be better to lay those cards on the table up front. Now that we've sufficiently hedged our bets, let's get into the details. The problem. By now, you're probably wondering what massive continuity error could possibly necessitate the creation of an entire thousand-year-long war in-universe and all that equivocating we just did, and frankly, you're right to do so. We've been fairly vague about it at this point, so we'll cut right to the chase. In 1977's A New Hope, set in Year Zero, Obi-Wan Kenobi famously says that the Jedi Knights defended the Republic for a thousand generations before the Empire. A generation is typically thought of as being 25 years long, so you're looking at the Republic and the Jedi each being at least 25,000 years old by the time of the original trilogy. However, by the time of 1999's The Phantom Menace, set 32 years before A New Hope, That had seemingly changed. The first hints are pretty vague. In the film, Sayo Bibble says there hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic, and Kayati Mundi states the Sith have been extinct for a millennia, but the novelization gets a bit more explicit. In dialogue, we find that the Sith began some 2,000 years earlier. There was a war that lasted for 1,000 years, and the Sith were eventually defeated and then consolidated by Bane. So that's different than what, from what came before in the EU, but it's nothing that couldn't be retconned with a little effort. Then, 2002's Attack of the Clones created a much bigger continuity issue. In the film, set in 22 BBY, both Chancellor Palpatine and Obi-Wan Kenobi allude to the Republic having stood for a thousand years. Now, there are a lot of ways to smooth out retcons in canon, but it's much harder to reconcile a 24,000-year difference in the founding of the Republic especially when Kenobi himself is the one who supplies the separate dates. So it was that George Lucas, the writer of A New Hope, The Phantom Menace, and Attack of the Clones, created a massive continuity discrepancy. 
not just between his movies and the EU, but between his own trilogies. So that leaves two questions. Why did this happen, and how can this discrepancy possibly be resolved? Leaving aside the resolution for the moment, let's try to figure out why George Lucas would do this to his own continuity. Well, there appear, there appear to be two likely possibilities. The first is that Lucas actually disliked the EU to some degree and used the prequels as an opportunity for to foreclose on the EU timeline, doing away with decades of existing stories. The second and much more likely possibility is that Lucas simply doesn't view the EU the way that we, the fans, do, and the dialogue wasn't introduced with any ill intent. No, it seems that the first possibility is based more on fan reaction to the prequels than any ill intent Lucas ever showed. There is, as we all know, a certain brand of Star Wars fan who views anything Lucas does with the franchise as inherently suspicious following disappointment with the prequels. And while we're not here to convince anyone to like the prequels, it seems weird to continuously project that disappointment 15 years after they ended. Just saying. Regardless of how you feel about Lucas personally, or the prequels as films, he's never really had much bad to say about the EU. He just seems to view the Star Wars universe in a fundamentally different way than fans normally do. In the preface to the 1996 re-release of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Lucas said, quote, After Star Wars was released, it became apparent that my story, however many films it took to tell, was only one of thousands that could be told about the characters who inhabit its galaxy. But these were not stories that I was destined to tell. Instead, they would spring from the imagination of other writers inspired by the glimpse of a galaxy that Star Wars provided, end quote. Whereas most fans of any franchise view all content associated with that franchise as happening within the same universe, Lucas did not. He had a set of stories he wanted to tell and did so across six movies and seven seasons of The Clone Wars. To him, the EU took place in a parallel universe. Separate universes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In an interview following the 2005 release of Revenge of the Sith, Lucas said, quote, I don't read that stuff. I haven't read any of the novels. I don't know anything about that world. That's a different world than my world, but I do try to keep it consistent. They try to make their universe as consistent with mine as possible, but obviously they get enthusiastic and want to go off in other directions, end quote. This quote comes from the after the prequel trilogy was finished. If Lucas hated the EU enough to try and write it out of existence earlier in the prequels, he had an odd way of showing it by the end. Then there's also the anecdotal evidence that Lucas enjoyed some aspects of the EU enough to incorporate them into the prequels. Notably, his list includes using the name Coruscant for the capital from Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire, and incorporating the double-bladed lightsaber from Kevin J. Anderson's Tales of the Jedi run. And though we can't confirm it, a rumor has long persisted that Lucas once gave out copies of Tom Veitch's Dark Empire comics as holiday gifts. Again, if he had disdain for the EU, he had an odd way of showing it. Instead, circumstantial evidence and even Lucas's own admission seem to show that he viewed the EU as an integral part of the universe he created. He just wasn't constrained by what happened in the EU because that occurred in a parallel universe to his films and TV shows. It was a parallel universe over which he maintained full editorial discretion and which he tried to keep coherent but it was a parallel universe nonetheless. 
And that gets at another key point. The differences in how fans and writers view the franchise versus how George Lucas and a small minority of fans do. As you are no doubt aware, this show approaches the Star Wars continuity as a series of stories in a single universe told in chronological order, regardless of when they were actually written in the real world. When a new story is created, it is slotted into the canon based on the in-universe chronology in the same universe as the movies Lucas made. For example, KOTOR was released in 2003 and, in our minds, slotted into the canon more than 3,900 years before the events of The Phantom Menace. But they all happened in the same timeline within the same universe. Conversely, George Lucas would have viewed the events of KOTOR as happening in a parallel universe to his main universe. In this parallel universe, the movies occurred and all EU content defers to them, but in Lucas's main universe, only the six movies and later the Clone Wars 2008 animated series had occurred. Regardless of whether he liked or disliked KOTOR or any other EU story, he simply didn't view them as binding in his main universe at least not canonically. If he wrote something in the films that expressly contradicted part of the EU, that wasn't an indictment of the EU content. Lucas just didn't view it as part of his continuity. He obviously adopted some parts of it, but works like Dark Empire or Heir to the Empire did not occur within Lucas's main universe. Any effects his movies had on those works would be ironed out by the large team at LucasArts, whose job it was to maintain EU continuity. Thus, when Lucas was writing these changes in the prequels, it wasn't malicious. It was just something that the EU would address in its own way. This two-universe idea was already somewhat confusing to fans who see Star Wars plastered on stories and assume it's all part of the same cohesive canon. It's even more obscured now. It's even more obscured now because that's a, because that's how Disney operates the canon now, following their wipe of the expanded universe in 2014. At that point, the EU became a truly separate universe called Legends and was mostly discontinued. With a few exceptions, everything released under the Star Wars franchise since April 2014 is considered part of the main canon universe. That means that when a new book is released, for example, it must adhere to the continuity established in all 11 films in addition to every other piece of canon content. Well, it must generally adhere since contradictions do occur. Disney's approach also means that future movies will have to follow the continuity already established in canon content up to that point in time. Again, at least generally speaking, we understand these are fine, almost technical definitions, but it is useful to establish how Lucas viewed the EU and why it's such a confusing point to fans. In many ways, it's funny that Disney's decision to move the old EU content to Legends met with such a harsh reaction, seeing as they put EU in a separate universe, the exact same thing that Lucas had done to it. In fact, borrowing the bits you like from the EU while simultaneously creating new canon content was something Lucas had done for years with the Clone Wars. Indeed, we probably need look no further than Lucas's actions during his six seasons of writing, producing, and overseeing the Clone Wars. On the one hand, this series is chock full of references to things from the EU, and Lucas initially had the idea to bring Darth Revan into his main universe during the Mortis arc in season three. Though the idea was later scrapped because it would confuse fans, Lucas still brought it up and nearly incorporated it into the show. Likewise, later episodes that went unproduced due to the show's cancellation would have introduced the Yuuzhan Vong into the canon. 
They wouldn't have been immune to the Force, but they were still planned at one point. On the other hand, Lucas drastically reworked parts of the EU, creating continuity issues with existing stories. The biggest example of this is the Mandalorians in the years just before the Clone Wars. Instead of being warriors, as they had been for their entire history, the Mandalorians were retconned to have created a pacifist society in contrast to their warmongering heritage. This depiction clashed with several novels in the EU and frustrated author Karen Travis to the point that she left the franchise altogether. Travis had written much of the EU work that the pacifist angle in The Clone Wars retconned out of existence. Again, we're left with a picture of Lucas as someone who respected the EU enough to adapt parts of it and would contradict it where he felt appropriate, but none of this seems like disdain for the EU. If anything, it seems even more deferential to that content because he certainly had the legal power and creative authority to just wipe the whole EU if he saw fit. But there was no need to do that because it was in that parallel universe to his main universe though they would have obviously changed that would have obviously changed had Lucas ever done his own sequel trilogy films because there's nowhere for those stories to fit in the expanded universe now all of now all of that was evidence to back our assertion that continuity issues between a new hope and the prequels were not intentionally created to erase the EU or out of disdain for those stories but if you're still following this you're probably asking yourself okay if George Lucas wasn't purposely trying to ride out the EU, then what was the ulterior motive? Then what ulterior motive did he have for inserting continuity errors? The truth is, there probably was no ulterior motive at all, and it was just a way for Lucas to incorporate more world building. We know that's a somewhat underwhelming answer, but it seems to genuinely be the case. In fact, it's much likelier that the 24,000-year discrepancy didn't even enter into the equation, and it was simply meant as a rhetorical flourish or an offhand remark about a certain era of the Republic. After all, if someone asked you when Rome fell, would you say it was 27 BCE when the Roman Republic fell? Uh, and Augustus became the first emperor, would, or was it 476 CE uh, and the deposition of Romulus Augustus, the final Western Roman emperor? What about 1453 when Constantinople fell and the final physical vestiges of the Roman Empire died? The point is that ambiguous statements about how long governments last aren't really a massive contradiction or something that we're unaccustomed to. Plus, the entire Star Wars franchise is built upon retcons creating anachronisms in earlier films. Indeed, the thing that propelled the franchise into something much bigger were the retcons about Luke's parentage that appear in Empire. That was retconned even further in Return of the Jedi when it was revealed that Luke and Leia are actually twins. Despite such monumental retcons, they weren't considered malicious or somehow denigrating what came before them. Few fans, if any, would claim that the retcons in Empire and Return of the Jedi mean George Lucas has disdain for A New Hope, even though they make much of the dialogue an anachronistic mess. Hell, we all accepted Luke and Leia as siblings, even though they had already kissed in the canon twice. So what's the difference between retconned incest and a 24,000-year time discrepancy? One can be explained away as referring to an era within the longer history of the Republic, while the other is always going to be kissing their sister. <laughs> Occam's Racer. The other thing that would tend to disprove Lucas intentionally retconning 24,000 years out of the Star Wars timeline is the principle of Occam's Razor, which holds that the simplest ex answer is usually the right one. If George Lucas wanted to retcon the EU out of existence, 
if he had the power to do so, then why didn't he do it? Probably because that was never his intention. Besides, wiping the EU in this way would have only affected stories that occurred before 1000 BBY in the timeline, and at the time, there wasn't much. Recall that prior to KOTOR's release in 2003, the only stories in the Old Republic were 35 issues of the Tales of the Jedi comic series and about 10 pages in Alan Moore's 1982 comic, Talatni Throws a Shape. Why go through all that trouble to write out 36 comics? Further, why would you go through all that trouble to write out 36 comics and then not actually do it? And if he was going to just erase it, why help Kevin J. Anderson develop parts of Tales of the Jedi and later incorporate Anderson's double-bladed lightsaber concept into the prequels? Hell, if he was going to wipe the EU, why did he approve the general plot points of KOTOR? If you'll remember back to Series 5 on KOTOR, we discussed how Lucas approved every single one of Bioware's ideas for the game, except for the lightsaber colors. Bioware wanted eight, Lucas wanted three, and they settled on the five that went into the game. Why even approve the game's release in 2003 if you intended for dialogue in 2002's Attack of the Clones to supersede it? It just doesn't make sense unless it was contractual in nature, but if that was the case, why greenlight KOTOR 2 in 2003? To make a long story short, Lucas's approach to the EU and his actions after the prequel trilogy was released would appear to make it clear that wiping the Old Republic EU wasn't the point. The references to the age of the Republic were just more world-building by Lucas to give the Star Wars universe more depth. They were a way to place a new era and give context for why the Republic didn't have a standing army. Now that we've beaten this dead horse for long enough, let's finally talk about how they resolved the problem. The solution. Finally, we get to talk about the new Sith Wars. When George Lucas decided to mess around with the continuity, he already had the bones of a backstory in mind. Though The Phantom Menace contained vague dialogue referencing continuity changes, it wasn't terribly overt. Sure, C.O. Bibble said there hadn't been a full-scale war since the Republic's formation, which would mean no war going back some 25,000 years using Kenobi's dates from A New Hope. But the phrase, quote, full-scale, end quote, leaves a lot of wiggle room. Also, it's C.O. Bibble. Even the characters in the film probably don't take that guy seriously. However, while the film might have left continuity changes up for debate, the novelization was far more explicit. After Terry Brooks, Terry Brooks was chosen to author, God, after Terry Brooks was chosen to author the novelization, Lucas provided a framework for Brooks to use for world building and background purposes. In Lucas's conception, the Sith were formed 2,000 years before the Phantom Menace when a, Jedi, when a Jedi Master fell to the dark side and took 50 followers with him. The Sith then waged a war against the Republican Jedi that lasted 1,000 years, which resulted in the Sith nearly conquering the entire galaxy before falling to infighting and civil war. Finally, a little less than a thousand years before the Phantom Menace, the Jedi and Republic utterly crushed the Sith in a climactic battle. After this victory, the Jedi and Republic were radically reorganized into the groups we see in the prequels, and the Sith were thought to be extinct. But, unbeknownst to all, a single member of the Sith Order named Darth Bane survived in secret, found an apprentice, and perpetuated his rule of two. 
At this point, we must note that Lucas's own framework for this background info assumes that versions of the Republic and Jedi existed at least 1,000 years before the Republic's founding in 1000 BBY. So maybe the question is about Lucas's intent to explicitly contradict both the original trilogy and the EU were kind of moot from the beginning. Logically, if the Republic existed for 1,000 years to fight the Sith alongside the Jedi, then Lucas was tacitly saying that a new era of the Republic was founded 1,000 years before, not that the entity's entire history was only 1,000 years old. From there, Lucas left it to the EU writers to contextualize his ideas within the larger EU timeline. They had the outline. About 2,000 years before the prequels, the Sith split from the Jedi and waged a thousand-year-long war that saw the Sith defeated roughly a thousand years before with Darth Bane as the only survivor. For some years, Lucas had forbidden any writers to set stories in the years before A New Hope, so that part of the canon was mostly untouched. There were scattered references to the time period and other EU content which the group relied upon to develop the new Sith Wars. From this, they borrowed heavily from lore provided in the 1997 video game Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2 and its novelization, which take place in 5 ABY, or after Battle of Yavin. The protagonist, Kyle Katarn, finds the Valley of the Jedi on the planet Rusan, where a battle took place between Jedi and Dark Jedi. The battle ended when the Jedi's Army of Light defeated the Brotherhood of Darkness, and a force ability known as a Thought Bomb was used. A reference book, The Essential Chronology, then grafted this lore onto the foundation provided by Lucas's outline, and the first details of the new Sith War started to form. The Essential Chronology also took the time to paper over the two biggest continuity issues created by Lucas's changes in the prequels. In the expanded universe timeline, the Republic had existed for more than 25,000 years, and the Sith split off in... 6,900 BBY, nice, far older than the prequels imply. However, this was easily retconned. The references to the Republic being founded 1,000 years earlier were actually referring to the time since the most recent Republic reorganization. Likewise, it was explained that the Sith Empire hadn't been founded 2,000 years before, but that a new iteration of the Sith Empire had risen after Dark Jedi left the Jedi Order. Although the new Sith changed a few things around, they still fall in line with the main Sith Empire of Mark Aragnos and Naga Sadal, and which was later resurrected by other fallen Jedi like Freedon Nad, Exar Kun, and Ulic Keldroma. The new, the new Sith Empire would, through many turns and peregrinations, eventually be reorganized into the Brother of Darkness from which Darth Bane would emerge as the sole survivor and institute his rule of two. Besides, Darth Bane grandfathered the new Sith and Brotherhood of Darkness into the main line of, Sith, of the Sith Empire by basing his rule of two on the teachings of Revan's Holocron. The two were also tied together as Bane took the Darth title, just like Darth Ruin, the fallen Jedi who founded the new Sith. At the time, taking the Darth title was considered something one of um, was considered something only one of the main line Sith would do, though that obviously changed with Swotor. Regardless, the continuity issues that seemed so foreboding to the EU were easily smoothed out by the first reference book that followed the Phantom Menace and its novelization. So much for erasing the expanded universe. 
the many contradictions of Darth Bane. But almost immediately, the new Sith Wars content began generating its own continuity problems, most of them centering around Darth Bane. Though that might seem odd now, but at the time, Bane was considered the most important expanded universe character. Bane represented something very interesting in Star Wars, a character not mentioned or seen in the first six movies, but who was nonetheless created and named by George Lucas. In fact, Bane may very well be the only Sith Lord that Lucas named outside of Palpatine, Vader, Maul, and Dooku. Bane was responsible for creating the Rule of Two, perpetuating the Sith in secrecy, and setting in motion the events that would finally destroy the Republican Jedi once and for all. Yet, despite his seeming importance, Bane's deeds and characterization have been rife with contradictions since his introduction. First, a short story called Bane of the Sith was released in January 2001, which explained the circumstances of Bane's survival and contained some other scattered details about the final battle between the Jedi and Sith. However, that short story was explicitly contradicted within three months by a six-issue comic series called Jedi vs. Sith. Jedi vs. Sith contradicted the Bane of the Sith on a number of points, both large and small. The comic changed Bane's relationship with the Brotherhood, the timing of Bane taking an apprentice, and even the deaths of certain characters. The two sources even disagreed on the type of lightsaber Bane used, with the short story saying he used a curved hilt, while the comic showed a normal hilt. By the end of the prequel trilogy in 2005, two more reference books attempted to fix these issues, but they would continue to persist until 2009, when Drew Carpatian's Darth Bane trilogy was completed. Started in 2006, Carpitian's trilogy of novels was supposed to streamline Bane's story and iron out any pesky continuity issues, which it successfully did in many cases. However, while it did largely fix these errors, the trilogy wound up creating even more questions in the process. 2006's Bane, uh, Darth Bane Path of Destruction tells Bane's backstory and outlines the final battle of the New Sith Wars, which became known as the Seventh Battle of Rusan. In doing so, Path of Destruction superseded both Bane of the Sith and Jedi vs. Sith, but also adapted much of the comics version of events into the novel. By adopting, by adopting the timing and battlefield layout of Jedi vs. Sith, Path of Destruction also contradicted parts of Jedi Knight, Dark Forces 2, and its novelization as well. Sometimes you just can't win. Path of Destruction also leaned heavily on Carpatian's work on, Co on KOTOR as it portrayed Bane's Rule of Two as something Bane developed directly from Darth Revan's teachings. In 2007, Darth Bane Rule of Two was released, expanding upon Bane's training of his apprentice Zana and their attempts to keep the Sith survival a secret from the Jedi. For the most part, Rule of Two avoids contradicting anything, but did adapt two concepts from Bane of the Sith, Bane being infected with painful orbalisks and Bane using a curved hilt lightsaber. Finally, Darth Bane Dynasty of Evil was released in 2009, which described Bane's frustration with building a holocron to pass on his legacy and his final duel with his apprentice, Darth Xana. And while Dynasty of Evil doesn't explicitly contradict anything else, the outcome of the final duel was so confusing that Carpitian had to issue a clarification within two weeks of its release. In the duel, Xana ultimately defeats and kills Bane, but a tiny bark 
a tiny part of Bane's spirit lived on in her. However, the way it was written led many fans to believe that Bane had really won and used Zana's body as a host for his spirit, something he did repeatedly for generations. In this clarification, Carpitian stated that Zana won and the reference to Bane's spirit surviving was just a subtle way of leaving exactly how much of Bane survived ambiguous. Even with the end of Carpatian's trilogy, Darth Bane's story would get even more confusing. Bane was originally slated to appear alongside Darth Revan in a season three episode of The Clone Wars that aired in 2011. As we noted earlier, this plot point was originally commissioned by George Lucas himself, but was later scrapped as it would have confused fans. Concept art was created for both characters, but production on them didn't even make it to the animation stage before they were removed. You can find the artwork for both Bane and Revan online. However, Darth Bane later appeared in a season six episode of the Clone Wars entitled Sacrifice that aired in 2014. In the episode, Bane appears as a malignant Sith apparition conjured by the Force priestesses to test Yoda as he attempts to learn the ability to become one with the Force. Bane was voiced by Mark Hamill and wore a different armor design and a full helmet, but the basics of his story remained the same. Later in 2014, Disney moved all content outside of the six films and six seasons of The Clone Wars to the Legends continuity. Thus, with his appearance in The Clone Wars, Darth Bane became the earliest named Sith Lord in canon. Bane would retain that title for almost four years until Lady Shaw and Lord Moman were introduced in 2018 in Charles Soule's run of the Darth Vader comic series. That brings us to another interesting aspect, both about Darth Bane specifically and the new Sith Wars generally. Much of the big events that appear in this era have been canonized, at least broadly. The Rule of Two, Bane, Zana, the Republic Dark Age, the Rusan Reformations, and more have been canonized in some form or another. Heck, even Supreme Chancellor Tarsus Valorum, a distant descendant of Finis Valorum from The Phantom Menace, has been canonized. With so much of it becoming canon and the story being popular, it's also the most likely Old Republic story to get turned into a film or TV series in canon, after KOTOR, of course. World Building Despite most of the focus being on Darth Bane and the final 1,000 years of the New Sith Wars, Lucasfilm still had to build out the background for a 1,000-year-long war. We know that it ends with the Sith losing and Bane surviving, but what happened during the rest of the war, and how did the Republic almost fall completely? As the story continued to evolve in reference books, the state of the galaxy during the New Sith Wars began taking shape, with a particular focus on the last 100 years. We know scattered events from 2000 to 1100 BBY, but the bulk of our knowledge comes from the Republic Dark Age, which lasted from 1100 to 1000 BBY. After many near misses throughout its history, this will be the full and final collapse of the Old Republic, though it began long before 1100. And while many of the stories in this era aren't that great, the... The New Sith Wars era does produce some of the most interesting world building in the franchise's history. As we see the Galactic Republic enter full collapse, crushed under the weight of its own corruption, ineptitude, and Byzantine bureaucracy. Before this, the Republic's darkest hours came in 3951, when the Republic came within one month of collapse during the events of KOTOR II, and in 3653, when the true Sith sacked Coruscant before the events of SWOTOR. 
Well, we're going to go, we're going to blow right past both of those as the Republic abandons most of its territory outside of the core with hyperlanes collapsing and the hollow net going dark across most of the galaxy. We will see, we will see things get so bad that the Senate cedes all power to the Supreme Chancellor, but instead of a Palpatine situation, we see the Jedi step into the power vacuum. For the last 500 years of the Old Republic's existence, a Jedi Master was elected as Supreme Chancellor. Jedi Knights and Masters became leaders of outlying sectors and worlds, standing as small beacons of light against the encroaching Sith darkness. But the Jedi strayed even further from their purpose as those, as those sector leaders became lords over large swaths of space. These Jedi were given castles and staff, and whether they wanted it or not, became nobility. So we get to see something new. The Jedi become a baronial order of feudal lords. The new Sith evolved along similar lines after they broke away from the Jedi under a rogue dark Jedi in 2000 BBY. The new Sith threw the galaxy into chaos. The initial Sith push was defeated by infighting, but the new Sith continually reemerged under new dark lords with their own takes on Sith doctrine. These new iterations sporadically united the warring Sith tribes and started new sub-conflicts within the new Sith Wars. Sometimes these new iterations were defeated quickly, but some of the Sith but some led the Sith to nearly conquer the galaxy before they were felled by infighting and factionalism. This cycle continued for some 900 years, but by 1100 BBY, the new Sith became feudal lords in their own right, battling one another and the Jedi for control of large swaths of the galaxy. Though we only know these battles through reference books and sporadic references, so everything from 2000 to 1100 is hazy at best. Like the wider galaxy during that time period, we know broad strokes and macro trends, but that's about it. Only one story appears during this time, and it's a short story that sets up characters who don't appear until the Clone Wars era. And as we will see, some of the stuff we do we do know is eye-rolling crins like the Dark Underlord and Darth Riven book, both of whom we will meet next week. However, we get a very good look at Sith feudal society in the Knight Errant series, which occurs in 1032 BBY. Knight Errant is told over five stories, one short story, 15 total issues over three comic arcs, and one novel, all of which were written by John Jackson Miller. Knight Errant focuses on a young Jedi named Kara Holt, who wants to protect innocent people from a war between members of a Sith family battling over an inheritance of several star systems. The Knight Errant series gives us another look at how things are for everyday people in the galaxy. Probably our best look since the KOTOR comics really got down into the grimy details of just how bad things get for regular people who rarely show up in movies. After Knight Errant, the feudal new Sith fall into civil war and are eventually subjugated and reorganized into the Brotherhood of Darkness in 1010 BBY. In that very same year, the Brotherhood initiated the Light and Darkness War, which ended 10 years later in the fateful year of 1000 BBY. The Fall of the Old Republic Chronologically, the next story after Knight Errant is Path of Destruction, the first of the Bane trilogy, which, which begins in 1006 BBY in the prologue, but otherwise occurs between 1003 and 1000 BBY. 
As you may remember, the Old Republic, both as a governmental entity and an era within Star Wars, ends in 1000 BBY. Since this is a people's history of the Old Republic, that's also where our narrative ends, and where it would end if not for the final two novels of the Bane Trilogy, Rule of Two, and Dynasty of Evil. Respectively, they cover 1000 to 990 BBY and 990 to 980 BBY, and for that reason, we will extend, for that reason, our narrative will extend 20 years past the end of the Old Republic era. We couldn't very well leave you without concluding Bane's story in its entirety, even if it means we have to cover events that technically occurred outside the Old Republic. But after that, there's nothing left for us to cover because we discussed every standalone story in the Old Republic to some degree, which was one of our two original goals when creating the show. We will go back and add a timeline to the beginning of episode 2.1 to cover the events that occurred in the earliest days of the Old Republic, but other than that, there's really nothing left. Some have asked why the narrative must end, and the simple answer is that there just aren't any stories left to tell. Uh, Swotor is the only ongoing story left in Legends, and even that appears to be done uh, after the latest content updates to the Onslaught expansion which we will also um, add an epilogue to seven, episode 7.7 to discuss. But the end of SWOTOR is probably good news for those of us looking forward to canon Old Republic stories. For many reasons, it seems like a certainty that SWOTOR will end before Disney and Lucasfilm introduce any new Old Republic stories in canon. It just makes sense. You don't want two stories running simultaneously in separate universes telling stories from a similar time frame and with fairly derivative names. That's a recipe for fan confusion, not to mention a marketing nightmare. We say all that to say this. If and when a KOTOR movie or Disney Plus series is announced, we will obviously be here to overanalyze and scrutinize it from every possible angle. After all, talking about canon overpublic content was the second of our two original goals. So the FOTOR narrative will end after Series 9, but the show won't be going away. But we've got four more episodes after this before it's time to say goodbye, so we need to set up the new Sith Wars. To do this, we will resume the narrative and cover the events that occur in the galaxy from the end of SWOTOR in 3626 to just before the outbreak of the new Sith Wars in 2000 BBY. While 1600 years is a long time, there are no stories from the wider galaxy during this era, and we have only scant details about the events we know of. Obviously, there are Lost Tribe of the Sith stories that occur in 3000, 2975, and 2974, but we covered those in episode 8.1, and they were totally confined to Kesh, so we'll skip them. Episode 9.1, we will will see us start the new Sith Wars and cover the first 958 years of conflict before we get to Kara Holt and the Knight Errant stories in 1032 BBY. We will cover all of Kara's heroics and the beginnings of the Republic Dark Age in episode 9.1. Episode 9.2 will begin the story of Darth Bane, introduce the Brotherhood of Darkness, and discuss the Light and Darkness War up to just before its final battle in 1000 BBY. We will cover how this new Sith became the Brotherhood of Darkness at Bane's travels while formulating the Rule of Two in Episode 9.2. Episode 9.3 will be an extended look at the Seventh Battle of Rusan, the Rusan Reformations, and the fall of the Old Republic. We will also talk about Darth Bane's survival, his new apprentice, and his resurrection of the old Sith ways. 
Finally, episode 9.4 will discuss the final 20 years of our narrative up to Darth Bane's death and Darth Zana's perpetuation of the rule of two in 980 BBY. We will also do our best to sum everything up and end the narrative fittingly. The Timeline After Sortor Let's back up to where we left the wider galactic narrative at the end of episode 7.7 after we left the Swotor bubble and slammed the reset button. After the events of Swotor, beginning in roughly 3625, things started to return to normal. The Jedi Order was fully built within 100 years because they had to face another threat sometime around 3500 BBY. At that time, a former Powan Jedi Master fell to the dark side, taking the title Darth Desilus. For the first time since Darth Trey had died on Malachor V in 3951 at the end of KOTOR II, the mainline Sith Empire was resurrected. Desilus trained an army of Powan warriors and went to war against the Jedi, killing many on different worlds. Eventually, Desilus became so self-assured that he didn't see the trap the Jedi had laid for him on Yaga Minor. There, Desilus was killed, trying to defeat the combined might of the Jedi Council, and peace returned to the galaxy. We know about Desilus because a simulation of him appeared in a training droid in the old Jedi Temple that Galen Merrick used as a sparring partner in the video game The Force Unleashed. It doesn't seem like Desilus took a bunch of it. It doesn't seem like Desilus took a bunch of Jedi with him, so there was no big schism here. While we're here, we will also take the time to cover Darth Phobos, a female Thelan Sith Lord who reigned at an unknown time during the Old Republic thousands of years before the Clone Wars. Phobos faked her death and raised an army of acolytes who went back into the galaxy to assassinate Jedi and Sith. The Jedi and Sith joined forces to defeat this threat to defeat the threat of Phobos. Much like Desilus, Phobos appears as a simulation on a training droid in The Force Unleashed. Canon alerts 44 and 45. Both Desilus and Phobos were canonized by the Rise of Skywalker Visual Dictionary, written by Pablo Hidalgo and released in December 2019. Their names were given to the 39th and 44th Legions, respectively, of Sith Troopers who fought for the Sith M- for the Sith Eternal during the First Order Resistance War in 35 ABY. The Sith Eternal customarily named their legions after long-dead Sith Lords. Only members of the Sith Eternal understood the significance of the names given to those legions, as the rest of the galaxy was largely unaware of the Sith and their history. That's all we know about either Desilus or Phobos. The timeline continues. After Darth Desilus was defeated, the galaxy entered a prolonged period of peace and experienced something of a golden age as borders expanded and new systems were discovered. Around 3500, Republic scouts made contact with a moon in the expansion region called Iktachon, home of the Iktochi species. However, the scouts were shocked to find the Republic insignia carved into one of the moon's plateaus. Turns out... The Ikochi have strong precognitive abilities and had predicted the Republic's arrival weeks earlier, so a group of the planet's leaders met with the scouts and Iktachan joined the Republic. After 3200 BBY, the Yavin system was rediscovered by the Republic but was classified as uninhabitable and left untouched at the time. Around 3100, the Queen Mother of the Hapes Consortium 
closed off the sector, beginning millennia of isolation from the rest of the galaxy. However, in 3017 BBY, the galactic peace was broken by the 17th Alsakan Conflict. The Alsakan Conflicts were a series of wars and proxy wars between Alsakan and Coruscant to determine which would be the galactic capital. 17 such conflicts were fought over more than 14,000 years, most of which occurred in the distant past. Now, you're probably thinking, 17th Alsakan Conflict, why haven't you told us about the first 16? The answer is because they all happen in reference books, and the last one we have a firm time frame for, the 10th Alsakan Conflict, occurred before 9400 BBY. We will cover this briefly when we add the timeline of early Republic history to episode 2.1. Following the end of the 17th Alsakan Conflict in 3017, the galaxy was once more at peace, a state which would be maintained for another thousand years. Despite this peace and the pretense of a long golden age, the situation in the Republic started to fray. The Galactic Senate became steadily more corrupt and continually added new members until it had tens of thousands of senators, far too many to adequately respond to the crises. Outside the core world's infrastructure began to slip into disrepair as it didn't receive timely maintenance. Prior to 2500 BBY, the Republic entered a prolonged economic depression that strained the entire system, which only exacerbated the infrastructure problems. Remember, without upkeep of existing hyperplanes and the hollow net, most outlying sectors would lose all connection to the wealthy and highly populated core worlds. By 2500 BBY, the economic strain and changes to military strategy forced the Republic to end the era of massive battleships that had existed for so long. Battleships were replaced by fleets of smaller vessels, not unlike the Republic military under Admiral Carthonassi in KOTOR II. The Republic military would continue to exist, but it was getting weaker and the Republic's problems just kept compounding. Around 2500, mining consortiums discovered valuable gems in the gas giant Yavin Prime's core, which led to a gold rush of sorts that lasted about 100 years before supply and interest waned. In 2203 BBY, a new hyperlane bypass was established, allowing Bacta to be transferred from Thyfera directly to the core worlds. Yet another in a series of examples of the Republic favoring the core at the expense of the other regions. By now, sporadic resource shortages occur throughout the galaxy and necessary services are in short supply. The Republic's ineptitude was on full display, and as the galaxy neared 2000 BBY, all the problems became overwhelming. Strained resources, a lack of infrastructure, chronic economic woes, and economic favoritism toward the core were all on display, but the Jedi just couldn't solve these problems. But the Republic just couldn't solve these problems. The Jedi tried their best to fill in and right the ship of state, but the Republic's broken superstructure was far too much for the Order to bear. The beginning of the end. So it was that the galaxy entered the year 2000 BBY. As we do for every galaxy-spanning war, we will take a look at the state of the major political and military powers on the eve of the new Sith Wars. As you might have noticed, we've spent that entire timeline setting up the Old Republic's position, which is to say, 
They're fucked. The new Sith Wars will quite literally break the Republic in every conceivable way. Though issues had been compounding since the final Al-Sakan conflict, the inertia of such a massive bureaucracy kept the Republic functioning and largely stable. However, a single external shock in the form of the resurrection of the Sith will shake the Republic to its core, exposing its problems for all to see. The Jedi Order, meanwhile, had been fully rebuilt with thousands of knights following the events of Swotor. With the completion of the Jedi Archives in 2519 BBY, the Jedi High Temple on Coruscant was fully rebuilt, turning into the structure we see in the prequels. For years before the new Sith Wars, the Jedi had watched the Republic's deterioration with alarm and attempted to mediate problems where it could. But it simply wasn't enough to compensate for thousands of years of corruption, negligence, and incompetence. We like to give the Jedi shit, and we certainly will over the course of this series, but they do everything they can to prop the Republic up, both before and after the new Sith Wars begin. But things weren't all great for the Jedi as the year 2000 dawned. An Umbaran Jedi Master named Phanius left the Order after his view of the Force shifted radically toward individualism, believing that his mind was the only thing to truly exist. At the same time, a few dozen Jedi Knights began to seek forbidden teachings and clash with the Order. Finally, the Sith were non-existent as an entity and were mostly thought extinct as they hadn't been seen in 1600 years. However, Scattered Sith cults remained, as did holocrons that held ancient Sith teachings. And that's where we will leave the narrative. Next episode, the ex-Jedi Phanius will find Sith doctrine, unite the Sith cults, induce 50 knights to leave the Jedi, resurrect the Sith Empire of old, and start the new Sith Wars. And with that, we close this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Thank you all for listening. Next time, we will start the new Sith Wars and introduce the Knight Errant, Kara Holt. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you. <laughs>